I remember several years ago at my last church, I uh, was preparing a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I remember whenever I was preparing that series, there was a section of 1 Corinthians that I wasn't too excited about preaching about, and it was the section about speaking in tongues. And I, I remember looking at that series and planning that series and thinking, you know, that's just going to be, be kind of awkward, you know, uh, preaching a sermon on, on speaking in tongues in a, in a Baptist church. And uh, I remember thinking, well, I mean, I just have to do it when you preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible. You can't really skip things like that. Well, fast forward a year or so after that, I was interviewing to be pastor here at Stephen Street, and I asked someone on the search team, David Dukes, and he, I said, did you listen to any of my sermons? He said, yeah. He said, I listened to the one on speaking in tongues. I said, you listened to the sermon on speaking in tongues? I, that's the one that you chose whenever you were considering a pastor for your church? And he said, yeah, I just wanted to see what you had to say about a controversial subject or something like that. Well, we've come to that point early in our, in our book, uh, in our, uh, our walk through Romans in this series entitled Lost. Uh, whenever you go verse by verse through a book of the Bible, you're bound to encounter some verses that make you uncomfortable, things that you don't understand, things that cause confusion, and various emotions that we have about things that God says. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could just pick and choose the things that we wanted to hear from God about? But I believe that the Lord has strategically placed topics that he wants us to hear in every book of the Bible so that we will grasp the whole counsel of God. And so today, as we, con uh, as we continue in this uh, series entitled Lost, we're going to see what God has to say to us uh, from his word about things related to gender and sexual orientation, things that are, uh, that are flooding us in our culture right now. On April the 28th, 2015, in a landmark decision of the Supreme Court, Obergefell v. Hodges officially made gay marriage legal in our nation. And now the United States of America joins 28 other nations in which this is legal. Then President Barack Obama celebrated this decision by casting a rainbow on the White House. Fast forward almost six years later, February of this year, we had the Equality Act that was placed before Congress by Congressman David Silicini of Delaware. This bill is currently being considered, and we don't really know and understand the full ramifications for conservative Bible-believing Christians of how this will affect us, but there is a lot of speculation that this could bring persecution upon Christian institutions, colleges, and things like that who refuse to affirm all manner of sexual orientation and gender identity. There's also some speculation that it could lead to the persecution of churches. We simply don't know. Now, most of you know me. You know that I'm not a political preacher. I believe that when you come to church, you want to hear things that are different than that. I believe that whenever we come to church, we want to find something here in this place that is different than we find out in the world, different than we find on the news. However, when the laws of our nation swerve into the lane of religion, and whenever they cross the barrier of separation of church and state as expressed in our Constitution and impose upon us, on upon our consciences, the things Things that clearly violate our convictions, we, we must proclaim what God says. 
And there are many voices that tell us what to believe about sex, sexual orientation, and gender. And your kids are getting it in school. They're getting it early in life through curriculum in public schools and other places, and certainly on social media. And there's not any more important time for us to proclaim what God has to say about all of these things than today. Many issues um, about related to this that God has spoken clearly about. What has God said about sex and sexual orientation and gender? Let me give you a broad skeleton, not all of which we'll be able to talk about today, but all of these, there are full-length sermons in our, in our, on our website, in our sermon archive, if you're interested in these. I want, I want to give you the full spectrum of what God says. First of all, the Bible says that sex is for married people. We see this, we see this clearly through several passages of Scripture. We see that the Bible says that we're supposed to be faithful to our marriage partner. That's, that's just kind of a given. Lots of Bible verses about that. The Bible says stay married for life. It's just what God says. Several verses about that. How about this one? You'll like this one. This one will make you uncomfortable. Roles in marriage are based upon gender. We have a gendered, the Christians in our Bible have a gendered view of marriage that the world finds offensive. The Bible clearly tells us that husbands are to be the head of the wife and to love them like Christ loves the church. The Bible says that wives are to respect their husbands and be submissive to them. Here's one that uh, are being compromised by a lot of denominations. The role of pastor and the act of preaching to the congregation is only for men. We have a gendered view of who can occupy the pastorate. Speaking of gender, the Bible clearly says that gender identity is to be defined by God's Word and not about how we feel about ourselves. And to our point this morning, the Bible says, don't marry or have sex with a person of the same gender. Now some of you, as I went through that quickly, said, well, I didn't get all that. Let me just put all of that on the screen for you in one slide. And if you would like to take your phone yeah, you can get binoculars for that one. If you'd like to take your phone and take a picture, or if you would like to request a, a screenshot of this from our church office, or you can email me or something, I'll, I think this is worthy of study. Because listen, everything that we believe about sex and about gender and about gender identity and about marriage and about or sexual orientation, it's a package deal. We can't pick and choose and harp on one thing that we disagree with, that we see out in the world, but uh, embrace among ourselves parts of it that we're comfortable with. It's a package deal. And to compromise one of these things and to, to turn loose of, uh, of any number of these things, it causes the whole system to fall. And listen, I know, I know that this is considered hate speech in our culture. It's considered discrimination, bigotry, misogyny. Those are words that are used to describe the views that the Bible gives to us about sex and sexual orientation. 
and gender identity. But this is simply who we are. I have a firm conviction that these are God's standards. I didn't invent these. I didn't come up with these. If you look up the Bible verses, I promise you, I didn't write them. They've been around a lot longer from, than I have. And Christians have vehemently, vehemently defended these positions for 2,000 years, and in some cases longer. I believe that if Jesus appeared to us incarnate, that if he came to us in the flesh, I believe that he would affirm these standards. These are not our cleverly invented theological positions this is what God says. And there's two pitfalls that I want us to avoid in this. Two pitfalls that I want us to avoid. First off, we don't want to lose a biblical conviction. But second of all, we cannot have a loss of love towards a lost world. The world around us is not going, they're not going to embrace our positions about gender identity and sexual orientation. They're not. But that doesn't mean that we hate them. It, it, it doesn't mean that we have to have a hardness of heart towards them. All of these issues of sex and gender, the last one is what we're going to focus upon today. We're going to read some verses about God's opinion concerning same-sex relationships, and His opinion never changes no matter how many times the Supreme Court rules against it. I invite you to stand with me as we hear, Thus saith the Lord, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. The Bible says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to, nat to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today, that through the reading of your word, Lord, I pray that you would bless us. Lord, even through awkward topics, Lord, I know that you can speak. I pray that you would touch the hearts of all of us here. Lord, help us to know that you are the only Savior, Lord, regardless of what sin we struggle with. We love you and we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So there's a Supreme Court in our nation, but there's a Supreme Judge over the universe. Mankind is in a state of lostness, and God's verdict over our sinfulness is here described in frightening terms three times in this passage and I didn't read the last section because we won't be able to get to it today but three times we see the term we see the words God gave them up some of your translations say God gave them 
over. This is what theologians call judicial abandonment. This is whenever God says, I'm going to take my hands off. No more divine restraints. Just like sometimes if we have a pet or maybe even a child who has gone wild and we're trying to do everything that we can to intervene, there are some times that in the free will of man, the rebellion is so strong and God simply, uh, God simply removes his hand, God simply uh, lets go of the reins, and he allows the sinful expressions of our hearts in a passive judgment, he allows us to continue to reject him and have the full consequences of our sin and the full expression of our sin to take root in our life. That is not a good place to be. That is not a good place for any person to be, lost person or saved person. We don't want to be so rebellious against God in a certain area of our life or in a certain time in our life whenever God just says, I'm going to give you over to the hurtful desires that you so desperately want. Now, please understand, this is not eternal abandonment. This is not God saying that I'm going to give you over and consign you to hell for all eternity. That is not what this verse is about. This verse, because as long as a person is alive, there's always the hope that a person can be redeemed, always the hope that a person can repent and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. This is speaking about something and a manner in which God can relate to us in our sinful pride, in our free will, and in our rebellion, whenever we completely plunge headlong into sin, one of the ways that God judges us is He just gives us over to the full repercussions and consequences that we deserve. Now, we know that as God's children, God wants to intervene in our life. God, God wants to do things and say things and send people and, 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 and to intervene and to, to keep us from running headlong into our rebellion. But it is possible to have so much rebellion that God just, even, even if it's temporary in nature, for God in this judicial abandonment just to take his hands off and in a passive judgment allow us to run headlong into our sin. What has prompted this judgment? What has prompted what God is saying here in Romans chapter 1? What has prompted this? We would need to back up to Romans chapter 1 verse 16, passages that we've covered in previous weeks, to see all of the rebellion and all the idolatry and all of the suppression of the truth and the futility of thinking. But there are also some other things that are mentioned in this passage that God just gives people over to, that, that God would say, I'm going to take my hand of blessing, my restraints are off. And one of the things that God mentions here is he mentions this idea of being given up to immorality. In verse 24, it says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Three words that are mentioned in this passage that God just gave them up to. Then so, they had, There was so much rebellion in their heart, God just said, I'm just going to give them up. One of these words is lusts. This is a self-indulgent craving that replaces affections for God. Impurity is another word. This speaks about uncleanness. It's especially used in Scripture to describe sins of a sexual nature. 
And of course, it replaces the holiness of God. And then dishonoring. Dishonoring is the third word. It means to treat shamefully rather than respectfully in a way that honors God. And I suppose that these words could imply all types of immorality. But the context of Romans chapter 1 clearly points to an immorality that is sexual in nature, what the Bible calls sexual immorality, that is everywhere in the New Testament and the Old Testament broadly condemned using the strongest of terms. I'll give you a sampling of some of these, uh, one of which we read uh, during worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, describe the sexually immoral and idolaters and adulterers and men who practice homosexuality along with thieves and greedy and drunkards, revilers, swindlers, saying that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 uh, says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee from sexual immorality. says that it's a sin against our own body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us to abstain from sexual immorality, that we need to be more controlled. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 talks about that we need to put to death sexual immorality. Ephesians 5 chapter 3, uh, the same thing. And essentially what sexual immorality is, it is any relationship. Listen, this is Jesus' definition of marriage is one man, one woman in a lifetime marriage. That is, that is the standard. Any relationship outside of that boundary is entitled sexual immorality. And the Bible doesn't give us all, the Bible doesn't list all of the ways that we could violate God's standard. It just simply, Jesus just simply said, for this reason, a man will leave uh, his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, whatever God has joined together, let man not separate. That is Jesus' definition of marriage, going all the way back to Gen the first chapters of Genesis and God's original design. And so what sexual immorality is, is it's an exchange. Two times in this passage, we see the, the, the idea of an exchange. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, it says, in verse 25, it says they exchange the truth of God for a lie. There's an exchange. And that's, that's how the world does relationships. They exchange one man, one woman in a permanent relationship. They exchange it for something else. They say, no, there can be a relationship that doesn't involve marriage. Or no, there can be a relationship that we can break if we just kind of feel like we don't like each other. Or no, there can be a relationship in marriage, but there can also be another relationship outside of marriage. That's an exchange. That's an exchange for God's truth for a lie. There is a truth about relationships. There is a truth about gender identity. There is a truth about sexual orientation. And then there are lies. And we need to embrace the truth in what God has said. And we need to acknowledge that anything outside of what God has said is an absolute lie and an alternative that we invent. But what I love about this, implied in this verse, on the positive side, implied in this verse, is that when we do relationships the way that God designed it, that there is something worshipful about it. 
There is something worshipful and something God-honoring. Whenever we, whenever we actually embrace the truth that God has given to us in his creative design about relationships, but when done improperly, it's basically self-worship. It, rather than being a worship of the creator, it's worship of the creature, me, my preferences, what I want, my desires, my alternatives. It's self-worship rather than God's worship. And so giving up to immorality obviously is the first thing that God says, but there is one specific type of sexual immorality that Romans chapter 1 clearly and indisputably condemns that brings this judicial abandonment by God. Let's just call them dishonorable passions, or if you prefer, what the world calls same-sex relationships. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 through verse 27. Dishonorable passions, contrary to nature, shameless acts. These are words that God uses to describe same-sex relationships. Now, there are some so-called churches, some so-called pastors and some so-called theologians that attempt to explain this away and say, no, it's not talking about same-sex adult consensual relationships. That it's talking about something different. That it's talking about child abuse. There is no responsible interpreter that could look at these verses and come to that conclusion. The only way to come to that conclusion is to have a predetermined conviction, an alternative to what God has said, and then to force your own view back upon what the Bible says. When Paul the Apostle wrote these words, he was clearly speaking about homosexuality and lesbianism. He was clearly, even though he didn't use those words, he explicitly describes those relationships and calls them dishonorable, contrary to nature, and shameless. This past Tuesday, Gay Pride Month began. I did not have any clue that I had scheduled this sermon on the first Sunday of Gay Pride Month. I had no clue that I had done that until I showed up Tuesday morning and started to work on this message. And in Google Calendar, which you can't remove it from your Google, Google Calendar, it said something, I don't know if it said Gay Pride Month or something like that. And I was like, okay, the Lord's laughing at me. He did this to me on purpose. I just don't believe in coincidence. I believe that God has something to say. I believe he has something to say to you. I believe that, I mean, even though I was the one that did my sermon schedule, I just don't believe in coincidence. I believe that the Lord has something to say to you about these things. And those who affirm same-sex relationships, they're caught up in words and letters. LGBTQ+. Here's a new one that I discovered this week. LGBTQQIP2SAA. Never heard of that one. Non binary 
gender expression, gender non-conforming. There are all these terms that are used by the world. Listen, three terms that God uses to describe these relationships. Dishonorable, contrary to nature, shameless. This has always been sinful in God's eyes. This is nothing new. It surprises me that we have to defend this. It doesn't surprise me that we have to defend this to the world around us because the world doesn't hold our convictions. What's shocking and surprising to me is that as Christians, we've come to a point to where we have to defend this among ourselves, between denominations, and sometimes even between churches. It's splitting families. But God has spoken extremely clear about this from the very beginning. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 says that it is an abomination. So Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13 is an abomination. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says homosexuality is unrighteous. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 through 10 basically says that men who practice homosexuality lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, contrary to sound doctrine. Y- y'all, there, there is no mistake. There is, there is no disputing what God says. You have, to, you have to somehow reinvent these words to mean something that the original writer never intended and the original hearers never understood. You have to somehow twist these words to mean something that they clearly don't in order to come up with a different conclusion than the fact that this is sinful in the eyes of God. And there's an exchange. This is the second time we see an exchange. Romans chapter 1 says they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. There are relations, physical, sexual relations that are natural in the way that God intended for us, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And then there are relations that are contrary to God's original design. They're contrary. They're different. And the Bible says that Man has exchanged it. This one verse is the answer to the I was born this way argument. Listen, we were all born sinners. But we were not designed that way. We weren't created that way. And that's the beauty of what God does for us is he helps to restore us away from our sin that we brought into this world at birth, away from that, and restores us to the beauty of God's design. That's what the Lord does for us. Our our sinful fleshly nature gives rise to all sorts of evil desires and passions that are contrary to God. This is the case with all of us whenever we walk in anger or fear or violence or covetousness or materialism. Some people might say, well, I'm just an angry person. I was born that way. I've been that way all my life. That's no excuse for it. Some people say, well, I'm just a material person and I've just kind of been that way. That's no excuse for it. 
It's no, I mean, I could make that argument about everything. I was born a sinner. A womanizer could make that argument. Well, I was just born this way. I'm just following the natural impulses that the Lord gave me. I just, I just can't help myself. No, that's, that's no excuse. And as Christians, listen, as Christians, we distort God's best in all sorts of ways. Y'all remember that minuscule eye exam that I put up at the beginning? I want to show it to you again, that one screen that had that framework that you probably can't see without your binoculars. I want you, I want you to think about your life, Christian, because some of you some of you were really excited that I was going to preach this sermon. Some of you were really excited. Oh, yeah, we need to hear it. Oh, yeah, we need to hear it. Let me, ask, let, me, let me just point out some things. Within the body of Christ, in which maybe we are not living up to God's design. It is shocking to me how cohabitation among Christian couples is becoming accepted. And cohabit you know what cohabitation is? It's where you live together before you get married, right? You know what that is, don't you? That is open fornication. That is celebrating sexual immorality. Do we need a month for you? Do we need a, do we need a cohabitation month for your sin? Do we, need, do we need to schedule that? No, we don't. If the Lord was, and here's another, if the Lord was to put a spotlight on every person in this room that looked at pornography this past week. Many of us would run out of here in shame and we would be shocked. But yet, we uh, don't seem to contemn that as hard. Oh we, oh, we just want to show love to you. And, and oh, oh, and those of you who just, you're just not happy with your spouse anymore. It's like, yeah, I'm just not happy. I'm just mad at him, so I'm just going to divorce him. Do you know Jesus spoke more harshly? He spoke more harshly against divorce than he did anything else. Oh, and what do we do when Christians in the church, whenever they get an unbiblical, unjustified divorce, we just say, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, God, God doesn't want you to be unhappy. God, God wants you to be happy. I don't find that in my Bible. I don't find anything in my Bible that says God wants me to be happy. He wants me to have joy, big difference than joy and happiness. And we just coddle each other. We just love each other. Oh, we understand. It's a financial thing as to why you have to cohabitate before marriage. Oh, it's okay. I understand. He just doesn't treat you very well. And you have every right to just walk out on him. And we make all these excuses among ourselves. Oh, and don't get me on gender. Don't get me on that because I hear all the time we're always condemning people who have a different gender identity and all these different things. Well, let me ask you something, husbands. Are you living up to what God tells you to do in, in, in your gender, in your marriage? Are you leading and loving your wife in the way that you should? Because that's the command to your gender in marriage is to love your wife and to sacrifice for her and to give yourself to her. Don't, don't be condemning some other guy out there when he's not living up to a certain part of what you consider to be the male gender whenever you maybe, maybe you're clearly not living up to your side. Ladies, I'm, I'm going to be gentle here. But you know, the Bible, the Bible says that you're supposed to be submissive to your husbands. I didn't write it. I didn't, I didn't write it. The Bible says you're supposed to be submissive to him and that you're supposed to respect him. 
And don't criticize other ladies out in the world for not wanting to, you know, live up to their gender whenever you're not doing what the Lord tells you to do according to your gender in your own marriage. Maybe there's some things that we need to think about, church. Maybe there's some things that we need to look on the inside before we start pointing fingers. And listen, you, I, cl I clearly believe that God condemns same-sex relationships and, and a redefinition definition of marriage. He clearly condemns it. But so he has also spoken clearly about all the rest of it too. God's church is far from being pure. God's church is far from being perfect when it comes to gender roles. God's people are far from having perfect marriages. Perhaps it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. And for us to live lives of purity in all of these areas so that we can be an example. And listen, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Look at this. It lists all these things. Listen, okay, with the exception of two of these, I was all of these before I got saved. And some of you were too. And such were some of you. This is the beauty of the gospel. Is that Jesus, he saves us. He saves us from our sin. He rescues us from same-sex attraction. He rescues us from all manner of sexual sin or adultery or fornication. He rescues us from being a drunkard and a reviler and a swindler. He rescues us. He saves us. Listen, Jesus is not mad at you. He looks upon you in your sin with compassion. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Look what Jesus can do. The Bible says that you were washed, that you were sanctified, and that you were justified. Washed is a, is a cleansing that God does. It's a cleansing that he does in your life for all manner of sin that we might have going on in our life. He can wash us. He can cleanse us. And this is, what, this is what happens whenever you get saved. Whenever you get saved and you come to Jesus and you call upon his name, the Bible says that he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of you and that he cleanses you. And, and the, the cleansing doesn't stop. There's a process sanctified. There's a process of sanctification, a walk of purity, a renewal of your mind, a change of direction. I was going this way, but now the Lord washed me, and now he's taken me in that direction. And this is what Christians do. Christians don't, Christians don't celebrate their sin. They say, I don't want that anymore. And they cry out for sanctification. And I love this last one. The judge of the universe can declare you not guilty. It does not matter what you have done. It does not matter what sin you drug in here with today. The righteous judge can wash you. He can sanctify you, and he can justify you, and he can declare you not 
guilty. Let's make your sin something of the past. Let's, let's make your swindling something that you were. Let's make homosexuality something that you were. Adultery something that is what you were. Let's make all these things. Let's make all these things something of the past. Let's get washed. Let's get sanctified. Let's get justified. And that only comes in one way. That comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's the only way that it happens in your life. It happened to me. I was all of this, minus a couple. I was all of these things. And on January 29th, 1991, Jesus washed me. He sanctified me. He justified me. He changed me. And it can happen to you today. It can happen to you this very instant. It can happen to you right now.